So friends, I think that our image of Easter might be wrong. Or let me back up and say maybe only about half right. Now, even though it might be fun, we all know that Easter's not about a bunny and his eggs. Okay, that, that's a given. But what I'm suggesting is that we Christians might have an image of the resurrection that is far too sanitized. Uh, we see Jesus emerging from the tomb clean and white and glorious. And that's true. But friends, it's only half true. Isaiah 63 is a poem about Easter that paints the other half of the picture. And my prayer is that the other half of the picture will give us a whole new dimension to our worship of the resurrected Christ. So please take your Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 63. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. Take one of the black Bibles on the floor near you and turn to page 622. This is our sermon text for today. I would like for you to see it and read along. Isaiah 63, verse 1 through 6. Who is this who comes from Edom in a crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in a winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So mine own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. That ends the reading of God's word for today. Now, I can hear some of you now. There are people here who only come to church once a year, and this is the text you choose to preach to these people. Amen. <laughs> what in the world? 
I mean, a guy covered in blood trampling people down in his anger and making them drunk in his wrath? Oh, yeah. Yeah. See, we've been studying the book of Isaiah for 38 weeks now. And when I saw that this text was next, it's just next, I knew that it would give us an important perspective on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So how is this poem in Isaiah 63, 1 through 6, how is this poem about Jesus? Well, the poem, as you notice, asks two questions. First of all, who is this coming? Do you see that in verse 1? Who is this coming? And then the second question in verse 2 through 6, why are his clothes red? So let's ask the same two questions. And as we do, it's going to be helpful for us to identify the images in this poem. Remember, when we read poetry, we're reading imagery. We're reading metaphors that are true, but not necessarily literal. This is a poetic way of talking about a real, literal truth. So let's identify these metaphors as we walk through this text. Question number one. Look at verse one. Who is this? Well, if you were here last week, or if you have read Isaiah 62, we just left off with watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem, which is the capital city of God in Israel. And this poem is set where the watchman on the wall sees someone coming way out in the distance. And he's asking the question, who is this coming? Clearly, according to verse 1, this is a warrior. Note the language in verse 1. He's splendid in apparel. He's splendid in his apparel. And notice also that he is marching in the greatness of his strength. So obviously he has a military uniform on and a military brigade, and he's marching in greatness of his strength. This is an imagery of a mighty warrior dressed in his regalia, maybe with a cadre of soldiers. And notice that they're coming from somewhere. Look in verse 1. They're coming from Edom and Basra. Now, Edom is imagery for the most iconic enemy of Israel. They were the ancient enemy, the most iconic enemy of Israel. And Basra is their capital city. So this warrior, dressed in apparel, marching in strength, is coming to Jerusalem from the iconic enemy territory of Israel. And as the warrior gets closer, notice at the end of verse 1, 
He announces himself, identifies himself, and announces, there, look, it is I speaking in righteousness. What is, in his, what is the truth that is he announcing? Mighty to save. So the watchman asks him a question. Verse 2 is the question. Verse 3 through 6 is the answer. Why is your apparel red? So red that it looks like you have been in a great big wine press, a vat of grapes, and you've been trampling out the vat of grapes where they're all over your clothes, and now you're stained in red. So notice that this warrior gives three answers. Now pay attention to this detail. The the author, Isaiah, and the Holy Spirit of God didn't make any mistakes when they do these sorts of things. The warrior answers in poetic form. He answers in what's called a chiasm. And it's a one, two, three, one, two formula, which means that the one and the two serve to emphasize the middle. So there's the beginning, this emphasis in the middle, and then a beginning again. So in verse 3a, look at it, verse 3a and 5 match. He says the same thing twice, and then 3B and 6 match, but the emphasis is in verse 4. So this warrior gives three answers in this chiastic structure that emphasizes verse 4. Look at, look at the first thing he says. The warrior says, I have waged this battle Alone. Look at verse 3a. I've trodden the winepress alone. Circle that. And from the peoples, no one was with me. Again, he repeats himself. Verse 5. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. He's emphasizing the fact that this warrior waged this battle alone. So the people in the city couldn't rescue themselves. There was no one who was willing or able to help. So this warrior took it upon himself to enter into this battle. The second thing that he notes, the second answer, verse 3b And then again at verse 6, the warrior not only waged this battle alone, but this warrior executed his wrath against the enemies of his people. Look at verse 3b. I trod them down. Who's them? The people in Edom and Basra, the enemies of the people in Jerusalem. I trod them down in my wrath. Their lifeblood, like grapes, spattered on my garments and stained my apparel. He repeats himself for emphasis in verse 6. I trampled the peoples in my anger. What peoples? The enemies of his people. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath using that grape imagery there. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Why did he do this? 
Why all of this violence and rage and anger and wrath? Verse 4, the emphasis. The warrior is motivated in his heart. He's motivated by his desire to redeem his people by conquering their enemies. Look at verse 4. For the reason, here's why, the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. Poetically, what he's saying is, I had the day of vengeance, the day, the smaller day of vengeance in mind to accomplish the greater year of redemption. The vengeance was necessary to accomplish redemption. Do you see the the smaller to greater? This warrior is motivated by his desire to redeem, to save his people in his city. And to save his people, he conquered their enemies. Now we usually think of vengeance and anger and wrath as bad things. Certainly, splattering blood all over the place and pouring their lifeblood out on them. These are all typically bad things. But this warrior has grabbed a hold of his wrath and his anger to spill the blood of the enemies of his people so that he could redeem them. It might be helpful for us to get out of the Bible for a moment and think in terms of of someone like a, a President Zelensky of Ukraine right now who is fighting for his people against their enemy. And what's in his heart? Anger and wrath. He wants to stop. So no matter what you think about that situation politically, this is what's going on. And if a Ukrainian were to write a poem about their warrior, they would write something like this. Or maybe forget about war for a minute. And even though we think about anger and wrath in a a bad way all of the time, when can it be a good thing? Somehow, a redemptive thing? Maybe the violent fight of a father against someone who invades his home and threatens his wife and children. Motivated by anger and wrath, he's going to shed blood. Why? To save his people, his wife, his children. So friends, Isaiah 63 1 through 6, is a poem about a blood-stained warrior emerging from the battle victorious over the enemies of his people and returning to announce their salvation. Do you see how this poem is actually a poem about God's 
redeemer for God's people in God's city? This poem is written at a time in history about 700 B.C., long time ago, when Israel and God's city Jerusalem had just been totally ransacked by the Babylonians. Many of God's people were killed by the Babylonians. And those who weren't killed in the destruction of Jerusalem were taken captive into Babylon in a foreign country. And God, throughout the book of Isaiah, has promised to rescue them and restore them to Jerusalem. And this is a poem envisioning that future victory. So when this poem asks the question, who is this? Anyone who has been here for the past 38 weeks knows exactly who this is. There's no mystery. This is God's Redeemer coming to rescue God's people and restore God's city. And we know that because Isaiah, for the, for the first well, throughout the whole book, has given us portraits of God's Redeemer. There are four of them. This is the fourth portrait. Many of those portraits make up some of the most famous scriptures that we hear when we come to church. Portrait number one, when God said that he was going to save his people from their enemies, he said, I'm going to send you a son. His name is going to be Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God says, I'm going to send my son to save you. You remember this text in Isaiah 7, this, this book that we've been studying? The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That was the first portrait. God says, I'm going to send you my son. The second portrait. God says, I'm going to send you my king who will restore righteousness and peace in my kingdom. So another very famous text, chapter 9, chapter 11 of Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, God's son is going to be God's kingdom who will reign in peace and righteousness over God's kingdom again. The third portrait. God said, my son, my king will also be my servant who will suffer for my people. 
Now, this was the strangest one of all. For God to send his son, fine. For him to be a king who would restore God's kingdom, fine. We've got no problem with that. But that that son, king, would suffer? But the servant wrote four songs. Chapter 42, chapter 49, chapter 50, and chapter 53 are called the songs of the servant. Just in a nutshell, song one explains what the servant's mission is. It's to restore justice on earth and to give grace to the humble. Song two explains who the target of his mission is. And this is very unusual. Because you would think that God's servant is going to serve God's people, Israel. But God said, that's too small a thing for you. You are going to be the servant, a light to the nations. God's divine king will serve the nations of earth. Song number three explains what it's going to take to accomplish his mission. You are going to go through such suffering that it is is going to require you to be resolved like a flint. And then song number four tells us how he will accomplish his mission. Not with military force, but actually by dying in their place. This divine king will serve God's people by taking their sin onto himself, paying the penalty of the wrath of God against sin, overcoming sin and death so that God's people are free from their ultimate enemies Not Edom, not Babylon, but their ultimate enemy, the sin inside of every one of our hearts that separates us from God. So when the watchman on the wall of Isaiah 63 says, Who is this coming? Whose clothes are crimson? And he's marching in the might of his strength. We know who it is. This is God's son. This is God's king. This is God's servant. This is God's warrior. And he is marching from the territory of the enemy. Not drenched in his own blood but drenched in the blood of Israel's greatest, most iconic enemies. Not Edom of the past. Babylon of the present. But sin in our hearts. That's how this poem is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus Christ of Nazareth is 
the Son of God, the King of God's kingdom, the suffering servant, and the warrior who conquered God's people's enemies to redeem his people. We know this because at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, in Luke chapter 4, the very first thing that he did publicly in church, (laughs) he went to a typical worship service in his hometown church in Nazareth. In fact, you could take your Bibles, look at Luke chapter 4 for a moment, and you'll see in verse 16 that he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, hometown boy, and as was his custom, like this is not the first time he's done this, but as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, just like these read here this morning. Verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. (laughs) So you know what Jesus does? He opens it up to Isaiah 61. He found the place where it was written, and then he read. Look at verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and said to the people, verse 21, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus just claimed that he was the son, the king, the servant, and the warrior that Isaiah had written about. And Jesus didn't just claim it, but Jesus proved it. Because after he was crucified, he rose from the dead just as he said he would do three times publicly. Like if Jesus said publicly, you know, I got to go to Jerusalem and people are going to kill me there. Especially in that day, they probably would have believed him because he was quite the controversial figure. But he didn't stop with that. Jesus did not just predict his own death. He said, and then, three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. Even the Romans knew about this. Because in our reading... We saw the Romans post extra guards there to make sure that no one tampers with the tomb. But the man who claimed to be the divine son, king, warrior fulfilled his own prophecies and rose from the dead, appeared to more than 500 people at one time, the Bible tells us. Jesus is not only the son and the king and the servant, but friends, Jesus is this divine warrior. And Jesus 
conquered the enemies, the greatest enemies of God's people through his death and his resurrection. And our greatest enemy is not another country. It is not another person. Our greatest enemy is the sin in our heart and the death curse that we have been under since the Garden of Eden. Sin and death is what Jesus came to conquer. And he did. Here's what the Bible says. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God again. When this divine warrior says no one else can or will save God's people, it's because we're all sinners and we can't save ourselves. Look around. There's no one who can save us from sin. Why? Because they're sinners too. The most faithful prophet or priest or pastor that you've ever had, sinner. Your wife, your husband, as saintly as they are, sinner. Even your grandma, sinner. We can't save ourselves from the greatest enemy that we have because it's inside of us. We need to be saved by someone who's not a sinner. So God, the Son of God, became the Son of Man so that He could operate in this flesh just like we do, experience all of the temptations that we we do, and resist every stinking one of them. He was tempted just like us with lust and greed and fear. And he resisted every temptation. He was without sin. And Jesus sacrificed his righteous life By taking on the sin of the world, he became like the lamb who was sacrificed for sin, where they just put their hands on the lamb and transfer their their sin to the lamb and then sacrifice the lamb and shed the lamb's blood so that it could be spread over the people and the, the blood of the lamb made the people righteous again. Well, once and for all, Jesus did that to cleanse God's people. That's like the whole Old Testament. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He didn't just defeat sin with his sinlessness. Jesus conquered death because he went down into the grave. He went down into death. He died But then he defeated death by rising again, showing that he has power over death. So when Jesus died, he defeated sin. And when Jesus rose again, he defeated death. You know what that means? Our two greatest enemies, sin and death, are done. They are conquered. And when Jesus rose from the dead, yes, he was pure, white, and glorious. But brothers and sisters, he came marching out of that empty tomb 
with the blood of death and sin all over him because he was victorious. He is our blood-stained warrior, king, who was sent from God to save us. That's the other side of the picture that I feel like we don't get right very often. We're okay with the Lamb of God, but how often are we praising the lion, warrior king of Judah? But when we see both, the lamb who was slain and the lion who reigns over death and sin, it'll bring us into a whole new dimension of worship. That's what's going on in heaven right now. Revelation chapter 5. A guy named John, one of the apostles of Jesus, was allowed to have a vision of heaven. I know that's weird, but it's true. And he wrote about it in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5, John said that he was in this vision, and one of the elders said to him, Behold, look the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And immediately John says, I saw. So he was pointed to the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he says, I saw a lamb. Verse 6, standing as though it had been slain. And they sang a new song, saying, To this lion and lamb, Worthy are you, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then John in verse 11 says, I heard around the throne, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice to this lion of Judah, lamb that was slain, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Friends, sin has been conquered. Death has been defeated. We are free to live without fear of condemnation before God. And we in Jesus are now free to live without the fear of death. All glory, honor, and power belongs to the Lion of Judah, the Lamb that was slain. And when you see both sides of the resurrected Christ, 
not only will you worship him as that lamb and that lion, but friends, you'll fight sin like him too. You won't dabble with sin. You'll hate sin like he did. He sacrificed his life to rescue you from your greatest enemy and you won't play with the snake of sin anymore. When we see this other half, this blood-stained warrior emerging victorious over his enemies, then we will take up the armor and we will fight sin in our own hearts and lives as well. That doesn't mean fighting with other people. That means fighting the greed that resides in you and the lust that resides in you and the discontent that causes us to spend more than we have. We'll fight it. Let us walk. Let us walk after the Lord Jesus putting on his armor and making no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Isaiah 63. That is the other half of the picture that I think will take us into a whole new dimension of worship. Are you following after Jesus? This Jesus, this lamb that was slain, this lion of the tribe of Judah? Have you bowed your knee and your heart to his kingship? Or are you still holding on to your sin and your way of living? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, to you, we give all glory and honor and praise because you are the Son, the King, the servant, the warrior of God. You came to rescue us from ourselves. and God, we can't ignore you. We can't turn our back on you. Our sin is going to lead us not just to death in this life, but ultimate death, separation from you. And I pray that you would rescue us from ourselves. And I pray that you would give us the faith to not only turn our back on sin, but to follow Jesus. We worship you this morning, and we thank you for all that you did through your death and through your resurrection. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.